When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to Commons People, the HuffPost politics podcast. My name's Owen Bennett. Well, after months of renegotiations, a draft deal on the UK's membership of the European Union was presented this week. The deal, which still needs to be agreed by leaders of the 27 other EU states, sees changes in the so-called four baskets which David Cameron was pushing for. Protection for non-Eurozone countries, competitiveness, sovereignty and benefits for migrants. It is the last of these baskets which has generated much of the debate with a proposed emergency break on new migrants claiming in-work benefits if immigration is deemed to be too high, although this has been derided as ineffective and weak by Cameron's critics. The PM will be hoping to get the agreement of other EU leaders at a summit on February the 18th and 19th, and if he does get the collective nod, the referendum could take place on June the 23rd this year. Joining me this week, we have Paul War and Ned Simons, who are going to be talking us through the deal and the reaction to it. Let's start with you, Paul. You were one of the journalists locked in a room for an hour. Was it in Downing Street this week, going over the deal? Tell us about that. that was, it was in the Cabinet Office. In fact, it was in the, one of the oldest rooms in the entire government, which is the former First Treasury Boardroom. It was one of the earliest buildings in Parliament. But they did that because of a sense of occasion. You've got great big paintings of George III on the wall. Uh, we were all making gags about, you know, if only there'd been subsidiarity back then, you know, we could have held on to the uh, United States. That's another matter. But we're all basically a bunch of journalists sitting around, presented with this top secret document, the Tusk deal on what Britain's going to get from the EU ahead of the referendum. And we're all sitting around. We're not allowed to talk about it at the time. It's embargoed until half past 11. So it's a bit like an exam. You're all handed this in silence, this sort of 20-page document. You have to go through all this legal language and you have to work out very quickly what the story is. It was very quickly that we realised that actually, although he'd gained a lot from Brussels, he'd banked things like, you know, changing the language on um, Britain's rights within the European Union to protect the, the, the pound from the euro, Britain's rights to sort of uh, increase its, um, uh, the, the competitiveness of the, of the European Union, but also to put down a marker that things like ever closer union were never going to affect Britain. So he got lots of wins. He also won this thing called an emergency break, uh, which is going to apply pretty quickly uh, to migration. But Who pulls and, the break? Who, well, there, there's lots of buts okay, there. Yeah. The people who pull the break is a combination of the European Council, all the other 27 leaders plus Britain, and the European Parliament needs to ratify it. So there's, there's other things. But we all quickly realised the big fly in the ointment was that actually the PM had watered down his manifesto commitments 
crucially on curbing migrant benefits for four years. It looks like it won't be totally four years. It looks like it might be three, maybe two. And after that period, they'll be able to claim migrants, uh, claim benefits. Uh, and also on child benefit. He'd said in the manifesto, no exporting of uh, child benefit back home. Now you can take some uh, back home, but it's going to be at a local rate in your country. So there's two key concessions there. They were, but to be honest... None of that really matters a row of beans to most of the members of the public, let's be frank. And, you know, so, of course, but, you know, so David Cameron, you know, he then went to Chippenham to give a speech about the deal, and I imagine he then stood up and said, oh, I didn't quite get what was in the manifesto, this is the best I could do. I imagine it was completely like that. Funnily enough, it wasn't. Was he not? In, in How, fact, he used the phrase, Owen, which was, I can hand on heart say I've delivered on the commitments in my manifesto. No, it's my manifesto. He hasn't though, has he, Paul? Um, I mean, he has hasn't. he? No, well, he hasn't, but he's got quite a lot. And it's a classic Cameron. He's overselling something when he doesn't need to. He should actually be honest with the punters and with his party, say, look, I didn't get everything I wanted, but I've got quite a lot. His language changed yesterday as it happened in the House of Commons when he's confronted with lots of Tory MPs uh, and he was a bit more sensible about saying, look, this isn't perfect, but it's pretty good. Before we get into the people who didn't like the deal, of which there are many, uh, let's listen to someone who did like the deal and that is Ken Clark, who is one of the, the big beasts of government. He was a former leadership contender and he is the most pro-European Conservative you'll ever meet. So no surprise he liked the deal, but I caught up with him in uh, Westminster this week. I caught up with him in Port Cullis House, in the House of Commons, and this is what he made of the deal. Yes, I thought he'd uh, face more resistance to some of the things he was asking. Uh, the change ever closer union the Eurosceptics have been demanding for years. He's finally got that, although <laughs> I never thought it meant what Eurosceptic paranoid fears said uh, and uh, the, the most important thing actually which won't take any won't feature in this debate is the relationship between those in the eurozone and those out it's very important to our financial services industry which is the biggest sector of our economy but that's part too technical and detailed for anybody to bother about it once they're going into a referendum for the rest well uh, the only snag is he's, he's sold it so well he's now got to deliver it and I think some of the things which discriminate against foreign nationals working here, he'll find very hard to deliver, as I said. So I hope he's got something in his tactics to bear in mind that he, he's almost certainly still going to have to move from where he is. And given that the Eurosceptics will denounce anything he proposes as inadequate, pathetic, a sellout, an insult to our sovereignty, they're all now concentrating on cha obscure changes to our benefit rules, which they insist should be made to disadvantaged Poles. So he's, he's got to move off that. And when we go on the campaign, we've certainly got to get on to the bigger issues of our role in the world and the basis for our economy and the globalised economy. Do you think the campaign is going to be fought with broad brushstrokes on things like immigration? Well, if we're not careful, I mean, we have a big migrant problem, but it's nothing to do with people from Europe coming to work in Britain. The big migration problem we share with every other European country is these millions of people who are going to come here from North Africa and the Middle East who we have to deal in a humane and civilised way when they're refugees from war or political panic and danger. We've got to sort out what we do with all the ones who understand we're just coming from a better life, but we can't accommodate them. Whether or not we're in the EU has nothing to do with that. So the sooner he stops uh, making this apparently point about immigration a significant part of the discussions, in my opinion, the better. And finally, you, you've been in politics a long time. You know the people around the cabinet table. Do you think any of them are going to come out and back Brexit? Are we going to see any really oh, yeah. big figures? Who do you think, who do you think it's going to be? <laughs> oh, Ian Duncan-Smith and uh, Chris Grayling certainly 
If he said that he was going to bring back a statue in gold of life-sized Ian Duncan Smith as tribute to the nation, Ian Duncan Smith, who used to act as the whip for the Maastricht rebels, would be out. Uh, and actually, I'm afraid that's true of most of the backbenchers. Uh, and some of the new ones, I wasn't quite sure. I'm afraid most of the veterans like me were wholly predictable. And, of course, our opinions have little or nothing to do with these negotiations. Ken Clark there, floating the possibility of a gold statue in Duncan Smith being yeah. brought back nice. as tribute to the nation. Um, Ned, who do you think, who, who are we looking at now out of the, the, the big politicians? The politicians that, that people know, not the kind of the backroom people, but the people on the street who, who listen to people, to politicians, which one are they going to come out? Well, that's the problem, isn't that it? that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it doesn't, but I think I know what you're saying. That's the problem is, I'm not sure how many are. I mean, if you're looking at Ian Duncan Smith, I guess is quite well known. Who knows who Chris Grayling is? Who knows who Theresa Villiers is? You know, in, they're not having a go at them how good they are at their jobs, but in terms of the public knowing them, do anyone know who they are? Are they going to be the charismatic leader to take Britain out of the EU? I don't think that's really the case. I mean, Nigel Farage is the, obviously the one that everyone knows his name. Other than that, I don't really see this kind of shining leader. Imagine any kind of debate between David Cameron that everyone knows and Theresa Villiers. I can't really... David Davis, former Tory leadership contender, said in an interview with us that the only way it makes a difference if a minister comes out is if it's a minister that you're not expecting. Because it's already priced in a lot yeah, of these views. Yeah, yeah. So, Paul, what do you think? Who, who I mean, the, the name that everyone's dipped is Boris Johnson. Yeah. How did he react to the deal? Well, we saw this week Boris doing the classic Dance of the Seven Veils yet again. Um, two, That's an image. Two days on the, um, on, the, on the trot, he comes out of his house in the morning wearing his, his bobbly wool, woolly hat and he, uh, with his bike and... TV crew is waiting and, he, and he's got this pre-prep line. First time he says, even before the deal's announced, he says that we've got much, much more to do. He hasn't even seen the deal, he says that. Then on the, on the, after it's announced, the following day, he says, well, actually, the PM's making the best of a bad job, uh, but there's still more to do. And so he's trying to put down a marker that, you know, he's still worried about this thing called UK sovereignty, uh, which the punters out there, I'm not quite sure they're that gripped about, but he says, look, Parliament's got to have the final say. It's got to have an act, a specific act of Parliament that says EU law is not more supreme than British law. As it happens, as long as we're members of the European Union, you, EU law will always be sovereign over Britain. Um, but the key point is, will Boris back any sort of out campaign? A lot of cynics in the Eurosceptics uh, camps on the back benches think he never will. And he's, this is all just a bit another game, another of the PM's gimmicks that he'll make it look like um, Boris has been desperately trying to hammer home this this point. And at the end of the day, he's going to give Boris a little bit of legislation in symbolic act in, just before the, the summit. That's what everyone thinks. Now, that might be utterly cynical. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, if Boris actually really does go for a Brexit campaign, that would be a massive story. I quite enjoyed um, David Cameron in the Commons telling Tory MPs and perhaps Boris to vote with their hearts rather than um, listen to their Eurosceptic grassroots, which I think David Davis interview with us said, actually use your heads. But yeah, a message to Boris that upset too. a lot of the backbenchers, yeah. that. And that leads us nicely onto the, the big question, which the Daily Mail's front <laughs> page will have in my hands. Who will speak for England? Uh, when it talk, and it's uh, the Daily Mail, the fantastic front page today, um, I use the word fantastic in the sort of realm of fantasy here because it somehow harks back to World War II as only the <laughs> male can do. Although it does say nobody's suggesting there are any parallels whatever between the Nazis and the EU. 
No, of course <laughs> you're not. And then it talks about who's going to speak up for England against the, you know, the, the, the onslaught of the EU. So we ask again, who will speak for England? And of course by England, we mean the whole of the United <laughs> Kingdom. So completely connect yourself. I mean, like, in this situation, like Chris Grayling is Winston Churchill. Yes. That's, that's I, what's going on, is on it? On Twitter as well, Twitter had, had a field day with that mail front page. You had all sorts of people ranging from uh, the Chuckle Brothers downwards uh, as who will speak for England downwards. online. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't just... Um, you know, it wasn't just people like Boris who were sort of showing sort of a bit of leg both ways. There were some people, of course, who were completely anti this deal, one of which was a Tory MP called Steve Baker, who has emerged as the kind of power behind the throne in the Leave camps. And this was him in the Commons um, speaking to the Europe Minister, giving his view on the deal. It's in at all costs deal. Looks funny, it smells funny, it might be superficially shiny on the outside, but poke it and it's soft in the middle. Will my right honourable friend admit to the House that he has been reduced to polishing poo? Polishing poo there, so that's uh, an elected spokesman. He, I, spoke, uh, I spoke to him later and he sort of said he wanted to do something which would sort of cut through a lot of the technical stuff. He was right, he, let's be honest, you know, he, although on the day some people ridiculed him, he made absolutely the most central point about which it, this, which is it's the PM's presenting a bad deal to make it look like it's rolled in glitter and that it's fantastic. And a lot of you are sceptics, they're brilliant bullshit detectors, you know, they know this stuff backwards. And a lot of, to be frank, a lot of the media know it backwards. Hmm. That's why Cameron got a, a heap of manure yeah, on a lot pages, of front pages. It? Because everyone knows, look, it's a bit of a fiction to say you've got a great deal. You've got a pretty good deal, but there's lots of flaws in that document that we all uh, sat around the table embargoed and looking at the other day. There's lots of flaws in it. Um, PM, as Ken Clark said to you, has got to make a much bigger case for Europe. And I think that bigger case will be certainly about economic security and um, national security. We've already seen from the encamp that the, the harem scarum tactic of saying, look, if you if you pull out of Europe, you pull out of the European arrest warrant, you make us more susceptible to terrorism. And there's all a lot more of that coming down the track. And that's why Theresa May, we're talking about big beasts, Theresa May coming on board or signalling this week mm. who's coming on board is a big boost for Cameron. Do you not think that, I mean, most people in the country are not like us, who, you know, really forensically that analyse politics, or yeah. the people, the good people now listening to this podcast who have made the, the very wise decision to delve deeper into the news. A lot of people get their news from walking past the newspaper stand in the morning on their way to work, or as they fill up their car with petrol and they see it, and they're going to see a load of front pages saying, this was a bad deal. And a lot of them are going to think, oh, well, it was a bad deal. So this it was actually had like an impact, right? The, it, was, it seemed to me that the front page of the papers were actually harsher on Cameron than the Tory backbenchers were in the Commons. They were quite polite to him. I, I was expecting a bit more of a savaging, but it, he didn't really get it. I think you did see him pivot towards the larger argument that you were just mentioning, Paul, about making it about the wider issues of security in the economy, away from the details of his renegotiation. That's definitely the way it's going. He's already started it, but the deal's not even been signed. Yeah, and I think the, the front page's point, though, is you're right. Most people have a glancing interest in politics and they have a very much a, a marginal interest in Europe itself. But um, at the end of the day, the thing that will matter from a number 10's point of view is whether or not on the bigger issue, not this negotiation, not this deal with Brussels, but on the bigger issue of in or out, what will the newspapers say? And a lot of people at number 10 think actually for all the bluster of the newspapers, many of them won't go against their readers. Many of them won't risk being on the wrong side of a referendum, just as they don't want to be on the wrong side of an election, and may ultimately just sort of hedge it in any kind of leader columns. Uh, and on the day itself, you know, what, what will they, and in the run-up to it, that will be much more important than the odd front page. What will people see on TV? How will they make their minds about in or out? And number 10 are convinced that people are really scared 
uh, that you know a, a leap into the dark is one of their best arguments. And the run up to it, we don't know the official date, but my goodness, David Cameron dropped a hell of a clue in PMQs on Wednesday when he responded to the SNP's Westminster leader, Angus Robinson, when he made the point that he didn't think that the referendum should be anywhere near the local elections on May the 5th. This was uh, David Cameron's response. First of all, I do respect the former First Minister of Scotland who said that six weeks was what was necessary. I also respect the electorates of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland on the basis that I think people are perfectly capable of making up their minds in a local election or or in a Scottish parliamentary election, or in a Welsh Assembly election, and then a period of some weeks afterwards making up their mind all over again on the vital question of the European Union. So no date has been fixed. There must be a six-week gap, but I think, frankly, he's looking for things to complain about. This House has voted for a referendum. It'd be pretty odd if, having voted for a referendum, we then spend ages debating about not having one. So six weeks after... The May the fifth day, add another week, seven weeks, you get June the twenty third. Is yeah. that the number the date we yeah. always thought it was gonna be? Yeah, it can't be the day of England versus Wales in the European Championship, which is the week before. Oh, is it really? Yeah. So it can't be that. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's gotta be the twenty third. Oh, it's um, almost like the forty three. Um, <laughs> the Leave campaigns uh, 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 you know, we wait going on there. You wait four <laughs> years for a referendum to come along and you think you'd have your ducks in a row. It, they are in a bit of chaos. I mean, we had this at the week. So basically, I'm going to make this very, very quick. There's lots of names here, which you'll never need to remember again. But there's two groups. There's Vote Leave and there's Leave.eu. Vote Leave are seen as a bit more the Westminster kind of group. They are run by people who used to work for people like Michael Gove. They want to do the, the campaign on the economic argument. Then you have Leave.eu, which is backed by Nigel Farage and UKIP donors who think, no, immigration is the argument you need to be talking about. These two groups can't merge or haven't been able to merge yet because of this massive difference and also all the egos involved. What we saw yesterday was Vote Leave kicking out people at the top of the organisation and replacing them with Lord Lawson, Thatcher's former Chancellor, because if anyone is relevant to politics, <laughs> it's a guy in his 80s who spends most of his time in France who used to work for Thatcher. But there we are. That now is now seen perhaps as a way of getting the groups to merge. But, I mean, even as I'm explaining this, I'm sure most of your minds are drifting <laughs> away and you're not really paying much attention. And what about Grassroots Out? Where do they fit in as Grassroots well? Grassroots Out is the third group. <laughs> I'm glad you brought them up. Which is supposed to be not going for the official designation of the official leave group, but it's supposed to be bringing people together. So they've got an event in Manchester tomorrow, Friday night, which is where we're going to have Nigel Farage from UKIP, David Davis from the Tories, Graham Brady from the Tories, Kate Hoey from Labour. Look at us. We're all different parties. We're all getting on. Let's all get out. I mean, I think actually, despite the fact that we, we all think it's a it, it's a bit weird that you've got people's front of you, Judeo and the Judean people's front arguing amongst themselves, that that, that that the out campaign seems split. I'm not sure the public really noticed. They certainly don't notice the detail of that. Again, it will come back to the central question: Are you in or are you out? And who's making the best case? It won't have to be one single person making the the out case. And in fact, it'd be better to have a series of people. Proper business people, people who are from politics who know what they're talking about, how to make an argument. Um, and you can, for always, faults. Uh, Farage is quite good at Absolutely. connecting on TV. 
Um, Lord Lawson, in his own way, can try and square off a bit of the Tory vote. And don't forget, the Tory vote is really important. Cameron thinks he's banked most of it. But a lot of those associations that he insulted There must be something week. to be said, though, yeah. in, for the out campaign of having an, an organised campaign, particularly if it's quite close. I mean, if it's a close referendum and the in-campaign is solid and unified and know, know what they're doing, delivering kind of a single message. If you've got these three, four out campaigns, all delivering different messages, perhaps even contradicting ones, there must be some part of that that could damage their, that I side think argument. The way that I look at it is I, I agree with both points. I think the, the public, I'm sure, don't notice, don't care there's always different groups. Mm. What the public do care about is if you say, right, we're going to vote to you the EU, what happens what? next? Yeah. What does Britain like after the EU? And they, they've all got different visions. Mm. They haven't been able to come up with a vision yet. And that is where I think it's, it's dangerous for the out campaign. They're not working together. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter at the moment what you call the groups, but if you can't exactly right, present a message and all go on TV and radio and in the papers and stick yeah. to this line and hammer it home and hammer it home, that's what it's going to be. I think that's right. I mean, the Scottish referendum showed you that. The, the Scott Nats had a really, really clear vision of what an independent Scotland would look like. There is no clear vision of what an independent England or UK would look like. Right, let's, let's do the quiz because we, <laughs> need to, we need to line up here. So, one of the big things has been this unemployment benefit, uh, sorry, in work benefits, emergency break, all that, yada, yada, yada. I went and, and, and found some research that was done, I have to say by The Guardian last year, we'll give tip my hat to them, and it was about um, Brits claiming benefits in other EU countries. Right. So I'm going to name a country, and I need you to tell me whether more Brits claim benefits in that country than that country claims benefits right. in this country. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. if it's more Brits in that country, it's Johnny English. Right. Yeah. If it's more of that country in Britain, it's Johnny Foreigner. Correct. That's good. <laughs> All right? Johnny Foreigner. Okay, so I'm going to name a country, and I'm going to name uh, Sweden. Oh, I'd say Johnny Foreigner. I think more Swedes are here than more Brits are in Sweden. Claiming benefits? I think Johnny English. I think more, I don't think many Swedes here are claiming benefits. Mm, it's a tough one. It is... Uh, Johnny, Johnny English, Johnny English. There's more yeah. Brits in Sweden claiming unemployment benefits than there are is Swedes in Britain. That, that, that is that is fascinating. Is exactly the word. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you uh, Portugal. Uh, Johnny Foreigner. That's Just because the Portuguese economy had a bit of a tough time. Yeah, Johnny Foreigner. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, 233 Brits in Portugal, and then the 6,200 Portuguese in Britain claiming unemployment benefits. Uh, Ireland. Oh, that's, that's hard because it's gone up and down our relations with Ireland in terms of flows and emigration. I Johnny think Foreign now, I think Johnny Foreigner, I think there are more Irish claiming benefit. When this was done, it was Johnny English, quite substantially. 11,000 Brits in Ireland claim unemployment benefit. Wow. And only to 2,600. Yeah. Irish nationals. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, okay, let's do Spain. That's um, surely it's got to be Johnny English. English. There are lots of Brits out there who are. If you if, if by claiming benefit you mean sort of pensioners, then there's surely a lot of Costadel. I mean, this could be benefits. a trick though. Hang on. You mean I, unemployment I, benefits? benefits. Oh. He's got a glint in his eye. I don't know. Uh, Go on. Johnny English. I'm saying. I think it's the reverse of what it's, I would have said. It's Johnny Foreigner. There's more Span yeah. Spaniards claiming unemployment here than vice versa. And uh, finally, let's do Poland. That's got it, surely. I mean, there's a Johnny Foreigner, and there's a huge number of Poles over here. Even a small fraction of the huge number of Poles here who are claiming in work. The, 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 the leader of the out campaign, Paul Wall, uh, uh, is of course right. There is, uh, according to this, there was about 15,000 Poles 
on unemployment benefit in this country, and there was two Brits in Poland. Two? Two claiming oh, unemployment benefit. Oh, someone find those two. There was two. one in Slovenia as well. There was none in Lithuania or Romania at the time of these, these stats. Um, other countries where Brits claim more than vice versa, Austria, Denmark, Luxembourg, uh, Finland. Germany? Uh, Germ- yeah, Germany as well, yeah. yeah. So... Um, if that, feed own they should, yeah, they should get involved and try and get some breaks of their own, maybe. Um, okay, that of course uh, wasn't. Oh no, we've got these stats because the stats to do with this. Sorry, I'm all over the place. The no. stats of the week at the same time. The stats of the week at the same time. Graham is in Thailand still. Yeah. In Koh Samui, on his speedos on the beach. So we have, uh, we have. <laughs> Ned. Ned, you have you've got the honour. Honour. Is that, Graham's stats is of the, that the word we're using? Right. Okay. Reading this. Right. Okay. In May 2012, the commission withdrew a draft. No, hold on. Hang on. What? You've got to start there. Start again. Oh, okay. No, right. You see. Okay. How long is this stat? <laughs> it's getting longer right. because you're not gone. David Cameron made much of the red card system agreed this week, but the EU's existing yellow card system has only been used twice and worked once. The card, which needs 18 votes to be activated, means the commission must decide to keep, amend or withdraw the proposal and must explain its decision. But the yellow card is no automatic block on a proposal. In May 2012, read this bit already, the Commission withdrew a draft law that would have introduced a new EU mechanism for settling Labour disputes after 12 parliaments, led by the Danes, objected. In October 2013, the UK was among 11 participants, wait, parliaments, which helped wave the card at plans to create an EU public prosecutor's office. But guess what? The Commission decided to push ahead with the plan anyway. That was that of the week. That was hard because all the fonts are different sizes. Yeah, we still but... typed out. <laughs> I like my hand while last week. Oh, I need some reading lessons. So it's been played twice. It's been played twice and it's only worked once to, to, cut, to get to the hell <laughs> with it. Okay, right. It's not just been the EU deal this week. There has been other actual politics going on. And joining us now for her Commons People debut is Eve Hartley, who is a news reporter Huffington Post UK. Hello, Eve. How are you? Hi, Owen. I'm good, thanks. Good, good. Um, so one of the big things this week that uh, Parliament's been talking about for a few weeks now is to do with a change in uh, pension age for women. And I don't know if you just want to talk us through, it's something which uh, the SNP MP Mari Black has really taken, taken on as a, as a bit of a campaign. So just want to tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, well, Mahari's been a real um, figure in this campaign, which has actually been led by WASPI. Um, which is the Women Against State Pension Inequality Campaign. Snappy, snappy name. It's very snappy, and it's nothing to do with animals at all. (laughs) And basically, Mahari's saying that women born in the 1950s were not properly notified at the age that they could retire would rise. And therefore, there's been a gap there. There's been a 15-year gap where they've not been able to adjust, they've not been able to adapt their pensions so that they can be financially viable now. So they're getting caught out basically because they didn't have the information is, is, is the point. Uh, this was the debate this week in Westminster Hall which is the sort of second chamber of parliament and there was quite a good moment where Labour MP Helen Jones uh, put down Tory MP Richard Graham. Let's have a listen to that now. I'm grateful to the honourable gentleman for giving way. He said earlier that the women who were protesting about this were being emotional. It's quite often a label that's attached to women who, who exhibit behaviour different from that of a doormat. Actually, <laughs> we are, are, actually, what I said to him about the injustices in this scheme was based on fact, not emotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we are. There's a bit of a slap down there for uh, Mr Graham. Um, 
Paul, is this is this going to cause the government problems? I mean, is this the government's fault? It sounds like something which is which came in fifteen years ago and hasn't really been sorted out for anyone. Well, the the, the what, what upset a lot of people was the response to that debate from the minister, Shailesh Vara. He had a sticky wicket. He was sent in there, and he had to this Westminster Hall debate. A lot of people packed in the public gallery. A lot of angry women. A lot of women in their fifties. You do not want to mess with them, and they're basically furious. Look, that a lot of people, not just the poorest, but a lot of people on middle incomes who were not sufficiently warned that this would come down the track, that the, the change in the pension age would catch them out. What happened effectively is the government in 1995, the last Tory government, had a pension act which wanted to bring in by 2020 an equal pension age. So women wouldn't get a pension at 60, they'd get it at 65. This government, or the last coalition in 2011, decided to accelerate that and bring it forward to 2018. So a lot of people say, look, no one told us about this. We weren't told about it for, for a couple of decades anyway. We weren't given proper information, like pension mis selling and, and and now it's even worse because it's getting even faster so a lot of women are really angry about it Shailesh Vara the minister upset people even more because he then said well actually this will all be sorted out because you'll be able to claim other benefits like you know you know job seekers allowance and people weren't happy at that at all it's a definitely growing issue a lot of Tories as well as Labour and SNP are really furious about it um, as you've said Murray Black's led the way on a lot of this and given it a massive profile but Labour too have done quite a good job. Um, whether or not the government will listen, let's wait and see. I think the government can see this could be a real problem. The question is, have they got the money? Eve, this is something which seems to have resonated quite well with our readers. Why do you think that is? The combination, the, the wonderful combination of Mari Black, who's such a fantastic parliamentarian that people really identify with, with an issue where it seems once again that politicians are just sort of ignoring women's issues again. Yeah, I think that you've hit the nail on the head a little bit there, that Mahari kind of seems to be a voice for a generation as well. And she's not only the voice for a younger generation here, but she's the voice for the older generation. And I think that's something that Parliament or our readers don't necessarily draw together, is, is that both sections are being ignored, and now we've got someone standing up for both sides. Because a lot of people make the point that perhaps she's too young almost to be an MP and they talk about how MPs need to have experience of the world and that kind of thing. But I guess this is a, a great example of how it's not about experience actually, it's about whether you can connect with people and having someone in there who isn't like your normal male, pale and stale politician does help bring issues to the fore. Is that something that, that you, you think is, is happening here? Yeah, definitely. Like Mahari's bringing a new life, um, I think, to Parliament and to the campaign. And the fact that she's young is often used by people to put her down or to say that she doesn't know what she's doing, etc. Or, yeah, that she has a lack of inexperience. Um, it's quite canny on her part, I think, because she's exploiting what is... An, she knows she's got an enormous following. She knows she's mm. got a big Twitter following, certainly massive Facebook following. She's a star and she knows it. And if you're a star, what you do is you, you don't just revel in the stardom. You use it to... to affect uh, what you want as a politician and this is a perfect campaign for her as, as Eve says it's not necessarily just about young people who obviously they're worried about their own pensions but she's fighting for an older generation so it, it's it's really interesting to see a politician a, a new intaker someone so young using their power so effectively and quite wisely. Um, finally there was uh, a, another was it, uh, David Cameron was, was, was he misspeaking maybe he said last week we had a bunch of migrants this week we had him making some 
some, saying some things about people who claim benefits, which didn't go down particularly well in, uh, in PMQ. Let's have a listen. Well, what I'd say to the Honourable Lady is that sanctions in a benefit system are important. We want a benefit system that's there for people who can't find a job, who need support. But it's not, it shouldn't be a lifestyle choice. And if people can work, they should work. That's why we have a sanction system. And I believe that sanction system is fairly applied. Ned. Compassionate conservatism next to uh, a lifestyle choice of benefit claimants. Well, I don't think it was a misspeak at all, was it? I think it was very deliberate. That's the kind of line they've been trying to do with benefits, is to cut down on, on them because they think a lot of people do think there's a lifestyle choice, while also doing the bit of compassionate conservative, well, you know, they're there if people who need it. So rather than the kind of misspeak, I think it's the kind of language they've been using all along and seemed kind of in fitting in with how they've described benefits for the last five, six years. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, everyone. Thanks so much, Ned, Eve and Paul. We've managed to get a whole podcast that mentioning Labour, which says a lot about their week, perhaps. Um, join us next week, when no doubt we'll talk about the EU and other things. Thanks so much. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.